Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Jack Marks is a journalist, blogger and author. His latest book is Australian Tragic, Gripping Tales from the Dark Side of Our History, a book of true stories from Australia's dark heart. As a journalist, Marks has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Rolling Stone, The Times, The Age, Men's Style, Ralph, and Australian Traveller and many others. He is also a former editor of Australian Style magazine. He has written online blogs for Fairfax Digital and news.com.au and in in 2006 was awarded a Walkley Award for his online articles, which were also serialised in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He's also written two other books, The Damage Done, 12 Years of Hell in a Bangkok Prison with Warren Fellows and Sorry, The Wretched Tale of Little Stevie Wright. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. It's a pleasure. Now, when did you discover your your talent for writing and what made you decide that you could do it for a living? Um, oh, well, I suppose everyone thinks they have a talent for writing when they're young and when they first realise they can actually you know, put pen to paper and something comes out that makes sense. Mm. So I, always in the back of my mind, you know, I was always good at it at school when it came to creative writing and stuff, but it went on the back burner uh, later in life as I was convinced I was going to become a rock star, right. um, I, I, kind of pursuant of that, I, I started working in the street press, uh, music press as a layout artist. And somewhere along the way, I uh, in my mid-20s, I think, I started writing reviews, just moonlighting, writing reviews. Mm. And um, John Casimir from the Sydney Morning Herald called me up and asked me to come and write for them. So that's kind of when I realised I I might have some sort of talent there, I suppose. Mm. So your training was really on the job. Yeah, I had no training at all. Uh, Prior to that, um, I uh, really all all the training I had was hanging out with journalists. Some of my friends uh, in my early 20s were all journalists who worked for News Limited or Fairfax. So uh, I spent an awful lot of time at night sitting, waiting for them to finish their deadline in in the pubs across the road from where they worked. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, you know, I got to know all the journalists, and I, eventually, I suppose you could say I became one because everyone thought I was a journalist. But you know, having said that, I learned a lot listening to them you know, bitching about journalists and journalism, you know, until early hours of the morning. So it was, um, you know, by the time I actually got a job on the floor of a newspaper, I'd actually, I knew an awful lot about the pitfalls and the things that bug journalists from one day to the next. That's great. Training in the pub. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, it was enjoyable. (laughs) So you've been a journalist. You're also a high profile blogger and you're an author as well, but they're all very, very different types of writing. Do you have to switch hats somehow or or what do you do to get into the right mindset to, you know, write a a blog post that's full of opinion compared to, you know, a very long, you know, uh, a book. So, uh, yeah, how does that work for you? 
Oh, you know, you know what, um, you know what you're driving. Like it's, uh, it's, it's not difficult to jump from one to the other. It's, I suppose you can easily forget what people want. Like as a blogger, what I feel people want or what I want from a blog is something that's fairly argumentative and something that's on, um, uh, with with the the author very much there live in the room for you to talk to and abuse and agree with and all of those things. So that that's I, I think I was a lot um, a lot more deliberately childish as a, as a blogger than I mm-hmm. might be as a journalist writing a story. Yeah. And with Australian Tragic, you know, the stories in there are very much they're, they're stories that I'm telling. I'm very absent in the telling Mm. of them, and that's the big difference, I think. Mm. And now your latest book, as you mentioned, is Australian Tragic, Gripping Tales from the Dark Side of Our History. What made you decide to write this book? Why why did you want to showcase these stories? Well, firstly, um, I guess it was a bit, for me personally, it was a bit of an antidote to to what I'd been doing for the last couple of years. I'd been writing full on my opinions on things and I've become absolutely sick of not only my opinion but everyone else's. And so I thought uh, I want to apply myself to just the telling of stories that I think, you know, deserve to be told well. Um, and I was really into, you know, along with that disenchantment with uh, with opinion journalism came a yearning for the sort of old sort of journalism that, you see in the old newspapers, very dramatic uh, or melodramatic sort of journalism. Um, and so I, I sort of dived back into old newspapers to find old stories like that that um, I thought needed to be told. And plus, Australian history, um, yeah, I was really bored by it at school, and I still am. If some, you know, there's this knee-jerk feeling when someone mentions Australian history. Mm that it's not interesting or it's boring it's not not as exciting as as american history or european history and i think that's possibly to to a degree true because we don't you know we don't go back you know thousands and thousands of years as mm. far as you know anglo-saxon history is concerned mm. but i do think there are there's a lot of great personal intricate history there um that just needs to be dug up and told and so this australian tragics really just i'm just trying to get a ball rolling there i suppose i mean i could have gone on forever but i had to stop somewhere Mm. so on that note then how did you determine what stories deserved to be told what what were the essential elements for them to then be included in the book well obviously they they had to be tragic in one sense or another um either in the literal, you know, sense or, you know, kind of pathetic and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there's plenty of those about. But really, it was just a case of me, really, it was going back into the newspapers um, and any story that popped my cork really qualified, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of stories that had been floating around in my mind that I'd sort of encountered on years through journalism um, that I knew were going to get a Guernsey in a book like this. But, you know, in the end, I had to find about another 20 or 25. Um, and it was easy. It was, you know, it was almost impossible to dive back at, and and pick a paper at random and not find a story in there that was worthy. Mm. That's, you know, there are so many of them about. So was it hard to leave some stories out? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of stories that I left out, um, partly because... Um, 
you know, you, you can only find so much information about things that happened like 100 years ago or 90 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and as desperate as I was to sort of breathe life into these people who are, you know, who are today just a, a name on a gravestone somewhere mm-hmm. overgrown, uh, I, I didn't want to make anything up. I wanted to... Um, I wanted it all to everything in there to be true, and sometimes there yeah. just wasn't enough in, information right. to tell it. Or you know, um, like another story was uh, one of the stories that missed out was um, I spoke to Mick Kennedy, who's a direct descendant of Sergeant Michael Kenny, Kennedy, who was killed by Ned Kelly at Stringy Bark Creek. Mm. And um, I thought there's an interesting tragedy there in that Ned Kelly is a superstar, mm. but. Sergeant Michael Kennedy is pretty much unknown, and he was just a cop who was out doing his job and was murdered in cold blood. And, mm. You know, the family, his family, have had to sit there and watch, you know, the the murder of the great grandfather um, go on to be an Australian icon. Mm. You know, that, that's, a, that's a tragedy in a lot of ways. But once again, there was so little information on on Michael Kennedy himself mm. um, that I, in the end, I had to let it go. And, you know, of course, when you're writing on a, a, a book, uh, you could go on forever researching. I think about 60%, 70% of my time was spent doing research, researching things that didn't wind up in the book, mm. whether they were stories that got didn't make the cut in the end or just whether I'd get sidetracked on something that was interesting that I knew very well was never going to make it. I spent a lot of time reading in the library things that were, you know, for the purposes of the book, quite useless. But, you know, you, you just run away with on little tributaries of stories like that and um, I'll, I'll know better next time. <laughs> More disciplined in your research approach. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be... Are there so many tragic Australian stories that there's going to be Australian tragic too? Oh, there's certainly enough material, whether um, there's a... a, a a, a demand for it or not remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, it's certainly something that could be easily done. Now, obviously, writing about um, dark stories is actually very compelling for a reader, so you can see the attraction there. When you decided on this, did you make a conscious decision because you were these stories actually just appealed to you or that you saw the, the you know, saleability of them? Oh, no, they definitely appealed to me. I think the reason for that is because... You know, I have to admit that my life is basically good. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I've had a fairly good middle-class upbringing and, uh, you know, I've had my traumas, but they've all been very middle-class traumas. You know, this pretty girl has left me for someone else or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, I find myself, like a lot of a lot of Australian men of my, um, my years... Uh, lamenting that I haven't done a stretch in prison or haven't sort of come back from some grisly frontline mm. battle, you know. And so naturally, um, when I want to uh, escape the the dreadful reality of mundane life, I'll dive into you know, something that's terribly tragic or or ugly. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, I think that accounts for. Uh, this great interest that we have at mm. the moment for criminals, you know, and and I find that a little bit um, unsettling, really, because a lot of these criminals that are fated at the moment are absolutely morons. You mm. know? If they were any good as criminals, we wouldn't know their names. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I should stress that, you know, there's not a lot of criminality in Australian tragic. It's more 
are more drawn towards um, stories of mis- you know terrible misfortune, you know, just people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. That's that that definitely interests me because it, I think we also are drawn to stories like that because. Um, you learn something from it's kind of a, it's a way to prepare ourselves for the worst you know um the stevie wright meeting stevie wright for the mm. book i wrote on him years ago was a bit of an education for me in what life might have been like had i uh not pulled my socks up you know mm. um so, so you know, there's there's also that education part too. You know, learning and, and preparing yourself for how to behave when the, the very worst happens. So, you did. How long did it take to research the book until finally you finished the final draft? And did you do it full time or combine it with while you were doing other kinds of writing? Uh, you know, I, I signed the contract for it about eighteen months before. Um, before now, uh, mm-hmm. before it was released. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a perfect world, I would have um, paced myself and, and, and um, you know, got in quite comfortably. But I spent <laughs> an enormous amount of time, like I say, allegedly researching, mm. but really it was just sort of... Um, reading, lots of interesting stories. Reading and getting sidetracked mm. and, you know, finding out a lot about people who I, you know, I'll never write about or maybe I will. But um, yeah, in the end, there was. I, I wanted to write all of the stories with the same sort of voice, the mm. same kind of uh, um, dime novel kind of uh, start. A bit old-fashioned, you know. So I, I wrote it all pretty much in one sitting uh, after I'd done all the research, which took, I suppose, you know, four or five months. Wow, uh, and uh, I wasn't. Um, I, w- I I was working for some of that, but in in the last few months, I um, tossed my blog in and got stuck right into it. So, did you have some kind of routine? Did you you know Did you follow a similar pattern each day in order for you to maintain some level of discipline? Or uh, in just... the end, yeah. I mean, once you get excited about what you're doing, uh, anyone who's ever written anything will know this. That you know, you wake up just busting to get into it Mm. um but you know it's really uh and so so process was less important to me and always has been less important to me than enthusiasm you know your enthusiasm your love for what you're doing will create your own process uh normally uh a 100 percent process when nothing else matters (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um that's that's pretty rare that you get to that point for me uh basically i don't I don't enjoy the process of writing like other people do. Mm. Um, I find it, you know, really uh, having your head turned into knots and being uh, concerned about how a sentence reads is is quite a ridiculous thing to indulge in. You know? um, I'd sooner. I hope sometime in the future someone invents some machine that takes the thought from your head and just completely compiles it. You know, that's that's what I dream of. So, what is which is the bit that you do enjoy? Um. Oh, yeah. There are moments when you are finished something and you know that it's good, and you know, uh, obviously, that's that's what you're working that's what I'm always working towards is the finished product but that's that's the only bit that I really love but having said that um you get to peep your head into things like um speaking to Jenny Poitivan who lost her entire family in the Luna Park fire um 
was an experience I won't forget because you know I've spent a lot of time in my career speaking to celebrities and uh, uh, people who are supposedly impressive and, and make um, are supposed to make those who meet them shake with mm-hmm. awe. And uh, then you meet some woman who 30 years ago lost her two children and husband in a fire in a ghost train right in front of her eyes. And mm-hmm. you, you realize, no, these are the people who have lived life on the very edge, not the others. Mm. Um, popping your head into their lives and when they open the door and allow you in is you know, a pretty special thing. Mm. Uh, so that I enjoy. I enjoy that part of it, that sort of journalistic rooting around and finding and meeting people part of it but you know the actual sitting down at the computer and writing I don't enjoy that at all. Do you have an interest in other types of writing for example fiction or you know could you belt out an airport novel or something like that? (laughs) Yeah yeah definitely I mean um, as I'm getting older I'm realizing that you know a lot of the parameters I set for myself about what I should and shouldn't write are evaporating and you know you realize that well yeah you realize that uh, I'm realizing that um, the reason pop things are popular is because people want to read them and Mm. you know (laughs) who am I to decide that I'm going to deny them that Uh, I think an airport thriller is a would be a great thing to um, embark upon John Birmingham did has done very well Mm. making that decision mm. and um and you know also i find australia possibly possibly the world of literature is very limited with regards to what they'll allow people uh, to be like um they they speak of stephen king as a as a um you know a horror or a supernatural writer but you know stephen king really probably should be allowed to pop up and write a you know a romantic children's book. Mm, mm, <laughs> you know, we we in Australia uh, even more so. People are slotted into um, you know here, this this person is a is literature. This person is mass market. Uh, you know, I just don't think there's a need for that. I've always sort of fantasised about having enough money and and, and enough um, um, enthusiasm from a publisher to allow me to write, you know, 12 books in one year, mm. uh, you know, a romantic novel, a, you know, an essay, a, a deep um, artistic toss, you know, all those <laughs> all those different things in, you know, I, I, I think uh, it'd be fun to be able to do that. So I don't, you know, I'm definitely into fiction, though I'm finding that um, one of the things that was hard about Australian Tragic is... Uh, uh, I was stifled by my duty to the truth. You know, um, I, I talk about as many liberties in that book as I'll ever want to take with with nonfiction. You know, presuming things that people thought, or assuming that they saw something or felt something that you know, if I were to be precise, I have no way of knowing for sure that they saw or felt. You know, um, mm. with fiction, you can give that ima- imagination its full freedom. And I'm sort of, uh, I found myself while writing this chomping at the bit to do that. So I think that might be what comes up next. Have you got something in the works? Yeah, um, uh, although I'm, I'm of a mind to um, have a foot in both camps at, at the same time, to be writing something non-fiction as, at the same time as something fictional. Mm. Um uh, who knows? I might even fall into the trap of releasing the fiction under a pseudonym. <laughs> um, 
Oh, uh, I think I, you've got a great um, name for fiction, for the airport yeah, novel. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, probably you're right. In fact, it's the ideal name for the protagonist in an airport novel, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. as you, when you've been trained as a journalist and spent so many years writing non-fiction, isn't it hard to to get into suddenly you can write about anything when you've, you, you've been so used to sticking to the truth? Yeah, it, it is. I, I actually um, had to do it recently for a book of short stories and um, found, you know, I spent several weeks sort of writing the sort of thing I thought that they wanted for this book. Mm. Um, and I really struggled with it. Uh, and after a while, you know, in, in the end, I just thought, I, I can't do that. Just do what you do. Do what you know to do. So I trashed the story I was working on and started up another one that was, you know, a topic that was close to my heart um, about a drunk in, a, in, a, <laughs> in a, um, a, a difficult marriage. And 24 hours later, it was done. And, um, you know, it was, I, I think, I think with the first story that I was working on, I fell into the trap of thinking, oh, there are other writers here writing short stories. I have to do what they're doing too. Right. And I didn't, I didn't think, no, Jack, just, you know, do, do what you enjoy, do what you love. Mm. Uh, only when I got into that sort of, and it was desperation that pushed me into that corner. Mm. Uh, only then did I sort of come out with anything that was worthwhile. So I learned a little lesson. There. It's really weird to be my age and be feeling as if you're learning things. You're always learning all the time. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how other writers feel, but I always feel a bit like, um, you know, I think because I didn't do any training and I've always slipped in the back door one way or another, I always feel a bit like the guy who's at a party and hasn't got an invite, <laughs> you know, just waiting for someone to ask who the hell I am, you know. Um, and I think, that, I think that'll continue forever. I'll never really feel as if I've... Um, legitimately um, paid my dues as a writer. Probably only in your own head because I think you're fairly well established in the, um, well, in, that, in the that's scene what, here. That's what I mean. I'd be yes. very interested to see uh, uh, whether uh, or to, to, to know for sure whether this feeling was um, prevalent amongst established writers. I'd, I'd, I'd imagine it is because it's just it's such an unusual thing to be doing. Um, uh, you really need no tools for writing. You, mm. There are too many examples of people who've popped up out of absolutely nowhere and um, become uh, well-known and established writers. Um, you always wonder whether you've got what it takes or, or whether you're one of the pretenders, you know. Um, it's quite possible that you're a pretender without realising it. You know, that's a great worry. I, I doubt that. And I, but I think also because there's fluidity in what you write, you've gone from journalism to blogging, which is very different, to, to you know, writing a non-fiction book, which, again, is quite different. So compared to, say, a journalist who only writes a business news column or something yeah. like that, for 20 years they're going to feel like an expert after 20 years. But they they would certainly feel a similar way if they then moved into another genre. So yeah. Perhaps that's that's part of it as well. But on that point, then paint me a picture. Say five years or, or or you know or so from now. What do you plan to be spending most of your time on? What what would your be? What would your ideal scenario be in terms of your writing? Um. 
ideal scenario would probably be um, writing fiction from home while at the same time um, uh, working on non-fiction that I thought really deserved to be there. Mm. I, I really don't want to... Um, you know, there's this tremendous pressure on on um, on you to to come up with an idea to flog to a publisher so that you can get the advance and so go whoopee, you know. Mm. Um, but I really don't want to write. Uh, I'm really resistant to the idea of writing anything that I I don't think really is really really worthwhile. Um, you know, like another another biography of one of our lamentable politicians. I just, you know, don't want to, don't ever want to sort of find myself having to do that. Mm. Um, so, and in any, any case, you know, so many times I've made five-year plans for myself and five years later found that I'm a million miles from where I was meant to be mm. with regards to that plan five years ago. So uh, I'm not uh, I'm not even going to speculate <laughs> on where I'll be. You know, I'll, I will say though, I'm finding lately uh, I'm I'm really impressed with um, television writers mm. more so than I've ever been. Uh, particularly coming from America, some of them really smart mainstream television um, coming from the United States. I'm wondering if that might be the challenge for. Mm. Well, well, it it does seem to be that a lot of writers are finding that the challenge is in writing for television. Um, even those shows that are fairly um, 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 populist, sort of like a True Blood, this mm. vampire thing, I find that the writing in that is superb. Mm. Same with um, uh, The Wire. and There's mm. a terrific English program that I love called The Street by Jimmy McGovern. I think he's only ever written for television, but it, it, it is it is literature. It's Beautiful, beautiful little story, half-hour stories, you know. Um, I, I could be there. I could certainly, mm. you know, I'd certainly like to see myself doing that, but, you know, I wouldn't have the first idea of how to get into television. Plus, there's also, I have had um, some experience with uh, with uh, dealing with the movie industry, and, and unless you've got the metal to cope with accountants and everyone dissecting your work, mm. um, you, you're just really don't want to go there. It's much more <laughs> so, a collaborative, collaborative process. Yeah, and I'm not a team player, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, okay, well, on that note, they're not – finally, what's your advice for budding writers and journalists? Should they be team players? <laughs> what should they do in terms of um, wanting to be published? In terms of wanting to be published? Mm. I don't know. Gee, that's a tough one because there's sort of no advice that you can give that doesn't come with a, a, an example of how it's bad advice. Right. One, one of the stories that really has buoyed me, well, and it's probably apocryphal, but I, I like to think it's true, was um, the author of Lord of the Flies. Mm. Uh, I read an interview um, with him years ago, and um, he's, he claimed that when the manuscript for his book was finally taken up by a publisher. The publisher who took it up almost threw it in the bin because it was so dog-eared it had clearly been to every publisher in the United States before (laughs) arriving on his desk. You know, I sort of love that idea that, um, uh, you know, not everyone can see 
the beauty in in something that you know there is one person who will get it and behind that person are millions you know mm. um that's just uh i don't know that there's an answer to knowing whether what you're writing is what everyone else is going to want mm. or not but you know there's just i think the i think the best advice to give is just write how you speak yeah. you know I've, the the writers that i've really loved um i've found that uh, they actually um, they spoke in the same way. They, you know, you've, one of the things I find with a lot of young uh, journal, journalist undergraduates is um, uh, they they try to write in the way they feel like a person in their position should be writing. Mm. And then you speak to them, and they're totally engaging speakers. And yeah. you think, why why don't you write just exactly as you speak? Just mm record yourself and, and take your own dictation, you know, mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, that personality is really comes through. Something else, too, I, I noticed in in researching Australian tragic was, you know, everyone's gone on about this new journalism, mm. um, Gonzo and what have you, being Hunter S. Thompson and, and Tom Wolfe and those times. That's utter rubbish. You know, when I look back into the old newspapers, mm. Uh, they were doing it then. H. L. Mencken was doing, you know, was was doing what Tom Wolfe did. Mark Twain was in his own stories all the time. Mm. There's really no such thing as new journalism. It's just been the same thing all along. It's always been put your personality mm. in the story where possible. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean you have to paint yourself into the story as a character, mm. but simply put your the, what is your spirit or your thought process in with the telling of the story, you know, and I think that's always really important. Maybe it's newly labelled journalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, they've got to keep creating new marketing marketing plans for old, so I, I think uh, the new journalism is just another one of those. You know, it's just a bunch of journalists who are willing to take the same risks and hang their jaw out like the old ones used to do. Mm. And do you always make a point to bring your personality into your writing? Um... Because are there some I, places where it's not appropriate, do you think? Um, well, yeah, there's some places where, particularly in journalism, there's some places where it's not appropriate. Mm. Um, but with regards to storytelling, um, I don't think it's possible to write a story, to tell a story well and not bring your personality into it. Mm. Well, that might be a bit uh, of a black and white thing to say, but I, I, I certainly know that... Um, I felt very at home, you know, I'm a sort of a old, old-fashioned freak. You know, I like the machine age stuff and, mm. um, you know, my, my heart is really in the first half of the 20th century, I, I guess. Mm. And I've found myself writing in that style when telling these stories from this book and I was mm. very comfortable with that, you know. So I suppose that's my personality dictating how the writing is going to go. Um, you know, sometimes it can get a bit over the top. One of my friends who's a writer thinks I, I'm a little too Dickensian for my own good a lot of the time. And I think that might be true, but, you know, I'm just, I, I like reading things like that and uncomfortable writing like that. So that's the way it's going to have to be. Well, I've already started Australian Tragic. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm definitely very gripped. I find it very compelling and I can't wait to finish it. So thank you very much for your time today, Jack. Really appreciate it. Total pleasure.
You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.